Nick, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, man. This week, I have the privilege of interviewing Jessica Makona. They say Naguyan, Nagayan. <laughs> and they would end up talking about the Bible. They'd be falling asleep on the couch, and I'd be like, you're not done. Wake up. <laughs> <laughs> I want to know what happens next. It was one of the first times I've ever been to a church service in my life. I'm 22 years old. Somebody came up on stage and shared the gospel, and I heard it. I had ears to hear it in that moment. Uh, I want to trust God for uh, my disciple to grow and, and make more disciples. Hi, I'm Brandon Briscoe, host of The Postscript and provost at Living Faith Bible Institute. I want to announce a new show from LFBI called The Postscript Shorts, you know, like a short story, where we take time with students from the school to hear their testimonies of salvation and discipleship and all of the amazing and miraculous things that God is doing in the lives of our students. Our students represent a wide range of ethnicities and ages, but most importantly, a wide range of ministries in local churches all around the world, and we want to introduce you to them. So if you want to be edified and challenged, join us every other Wednesday for the Postscript Shorts. Hi, I'm Brandon Briscoe, and welcome to the Postscript. In fact, a very special episode of the Postscript this week. Uh, for the very first time in the history of our show, we are doing a Zoom interview. So uh, we are online with uh, pastor and professor of the Hebrews class, uh, Brian Clark, and we are going to be conducting a question and answer uh, Bible study with some of the students from the class uh, that are joining us here. And uh, this is intended to be a supplement to the class that we're offering this semester, the class is fairly full. I think there's something like 40 or, or 50 students in the class this semester, and, and all of them have been very attentive and, and studying hard and doing their book reports. And we're about 11, 12 weeks into the semester now, and we thought it would be wise to do a Q&A so that students have an opportunity to pick Brian's brain about what he's been studying. And so we are working online, and Brian is uh, you know, on the other side of the world. He is in London, England. But Brian, it's good to be with you, man. I'm thankful that you're willing to uh, to be with us. Can you tell us what time it is in London? Uh, it is uh, 12 after 1. Terrible. <laughs> Do you hate LFBI right now? Uh, uh, very much. <laughs> before, we, before we got on, you were telling me that you, um, that you took some pre-workout that's right before you went Just into because this. i wanted to get wanted to get jacked up for this q a session man i was excited about are it you, so are you buzzing right now i feel fantastic yeah i feel so good right now man i feel just like i'm ready to go running or something that's good that's good <laughs> pre-workout is um cocaine for christians that's basically what <laughs> yeah. that, that is it's cocaine that you can get away with. Yeah, um, that's right. No, man, we're, we're glad that you're here, and uh, we're excited. And so, just for people who don't know you, Brian, I just want to clarify: uh, Brian's a church planter in London, England. How long have you been there? Uh, a little over twenty years. Okay. Yeah, and and so his church is Crossroads, uh, Crossroads Baptist Church in London, England, and. Um, he has uh, been gracious enough to teach the Hebrews class this semester. And, you know, this is a class that is often uh, 
a, probably a, one of the more difficult classes to teach, I would, I would guess, because Hebrews is notorious for being somewhat confusing to theologians. Um, but just even, even if it's, if it's uh, you know, theologically sound, it's often misunderstood, I guess, if you will. Like there's a lot of misunderstanding surrounding different topics throughout the book. And so this is a pretty difficult pretty difficult one to, to, to teach. And so um, maybe, Brian, we could just begin by letting you tell us why people have such a hard time with Hebrews theologically. Like, what, what is it about the book that people often struggle with, pastors often struggle with when they're teaching it or studying it? Where do they get hung up and why? Um, well, there's a number of reasons why this book uh, is difficult. Um, uh, number one, uh, the, the book is uh, very well written. It's a very eloquent book, probably one of the most eloquent books uh, in the New Testament. Uh, it's written, uh, the, the level at which it is written uh, is, uh, ex it's extremely complex. And um, so that's one of the reasons why a lot of people think that Paul didn't write it is because it, it's written at, it seems like at such a professional level, it's such a eloquent book, the way it's written, specifically in the Greek, they look at that mm -hmm. and they're thinking this book is uh, very well written. And um, so it, it is very complex, the way that he words things. And he, he writes it from a Hebrew mindset, because uh, I believe Paul wrote it. So, mm -hmm. you know, being a Hebrew himself, he writes it from that mindset, which they tend to think more in circles rather than linear. And so it's a, it's a complex book to understand, um, uh, even more so than other books. Uh, but also the book is written uh, the two Hebrews. So that cultural, you know, mindset, that cultural element uh, makes it difficult for us to kind of sometimes understand uh, the way that that book is meant to be understood. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of things that for the listeners would have been a given. Uh, that for us, we have to do a lot of study just to get there uh, because they just naturally understand that coming from the culture, but we're not Jewish. We're not Hebrew. Right. And so, right. yeah, there's, so there's a cultural barrier. Uh, the book also has a very unique message. It's the, it's the only place uh, where you get the full doctrinal teaching on the priesthood of Christ. Uh, it's the mm -hmm. only place in the Bible where you get a full doctrine of that. And then you have other places where it talks about his work as a mediator and uh, his work as the substitutionary atonement. Um, but as far as the overall scope and doctrine of him as the, the high priest of our profession, it's the only place in the Bible where you get that. Mm -hmm. So it has a very unique message. Uh, the book also has that prophetic application because it applies uh, to the... Uh, uh, Jewish believers in that will endure, have to endure that seven years of tribulation after the rapture. And uh, so that also provides uh, a very complex layer uh, to the whole book. And uh, so uh, the, there's a lot of unknown elements about the book that make it very challenging. Mm -hmm. uh, people are unsure who the author is. Uh, they're not sure when it was written. They're not sure who the recipients were. Uh, there's a lot of unknown elements that are uh, completely known to the other books. And so it seems as if the book kind of just sits there suspended in air almost, uh, untouched by anything. And I think that that's on purpose, but 
that provides a lot of challenges that you don't necessarily have with other books. Right. Uh, you, you, you're able to get a pretty clear picture of the immediate setting in a book like Ephesians, you know, or Romans. And uh, but you don't get that with this. So you have to kind of infer everything about the immediate context from the text itself. And so that provides, you know, uh, a, a great many challenges to theologians and to Christians alike. So uh, there appears when you read it to be a, a very a varied audience. And when you're reading it uh, in that Hebrew community, uh, there's a very evangelistic tone. There's a lot of evangelistic elements uh, in the book, uh, along with a lot of exhortations to believers and uh, as well as to false believers. So it can make it difficult to sift through when you're reading it, you know, like who, who is this part addressed to? Mm-hmm. And then in that same chapter, he can shift focus back to uh, another group. And so it makes it difficult to kind of, whereas with many of the books, especially your books uh, that really focus on the body, um, you know, that's not the case. Right. You know, it's it's one group of people all the time. Uh, but this has a, a lot of evangelistic tones to it and then a lot of exhortations to the body. So those layers make it difficult uh, as well. And uh, uh, regardless of the varying views on certain passages, uh, the, the thing to keep in mind about this, we, we have to keep in mind the purpose of the book. And that is really twofold, to show the superiority of Christ and to encourage uh, us to uh, hold fast the profession of our faith. And I think if we keep those two things in mind, those are kind of the things that help us keep our bearings. Mm -hmm. If we keep those two things in mind, then it really helps us to kind of uh, stay between the lines. But those, all of those elements uh, provide a very complex situation for trying to interpret this book. So if you were to, if you were to describe, like if you were to imagine this letter being read, um, what would the context you know, be what, like, what would the body look like? What would the gathering look like? What would the audience look like if, if this was being read, uh, you know, and, and that was, that was typical is that these, you mentioned in the teaching in your study that this would have probably been written as a sermon that Paul would have taught himself, yeah. mm-hmm. but uh, also it would have been used as a, a letter, you know, how it would have reached the most people was obviously through uh, a letter that would have been read. So who, who would have this been read to if, as you imagine it? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, we, we can see in Hebrews 13 where it says it's a letter, you know, uh, that it was uh, written to them. Uh, this letter reached them, but uh, it was constantly referred to as an exhortation throughout the thing. So I believe it was a sermon that was written as a letter mm-hmm. and it was written to a, uh, a varied uh assembly in that Hebrew community. I think you would have had people uh, that were uh, Hebrews that were connected to this community that were uh, lost. Uh, And I think you would have had Hebrews that were believers. And I think you would have had believers uh, or that you would have had Hebrews that were uh, false believers, people who had made professions of faith, or maybe they haven't, but yet they're convinced that Christ is true but they, they haven't, for whatever reason, confessed them. And, uh, and that's really not that strange, if you think about it. 
Yeah, uh, I think that's the thing is that I think to hear that, um, especially when we're looking at it from a perspective of a contemporary church or the context of the Pauline epistles, it feels very strange for a letter to be written to a, a, a body of people where there would have been a bunch of uh, tire kickers, right? Like a, right. a bunch of, uh, you know, people that were sympathetic to Christ, but not quite in yet. That seems a little bit strange to us. Yeah, it does. But, um, but when you think about it, uh, when you walk into church on Sunday morning, just sit and think about the, the group of people that are sitting there and you have all of those same groups. Mm -hmm. uh, you're going to have people who are lost that are there. You're going to have people who are saved and you're going to have people who are uh, maybe saying they're saved, but not really. And uh, people who maybe they're convinced, but haven't crossed over yet. Mm -hmm. uh, you have that exact same dynamic in virtually every single church um, that, that you would walk into. Um, and so it's, it's not as strange to us as we might think it is, it does seem strange compared to the other books that you read. Um, but when we think about a church setting or an assembly setting, it'd be pretty typical to have all of these groups there. So I, what I liken it to is to like Mark chapter four, uh, where, when he talks about the different types of soil and, mm -hmm. uh, and you have the wayside and then you have that, that falls on the stony ground where they, you know, they receive the word gladly and they even believe and they spring up automatically, but when the heat comes, it shows that they actually didn't have any root in them, uh, mm -hmm. much like some of those Pharisees and uh, in Christ's day that said that they believed in Christ, but they would not confess them because they were afraid they would be thrown out of the synagogue, and they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Mm -hmm. And then um, you have those that you know fell on the thorny ground, and they, they sprung up, and the thorns made them to become unfruitful. And you have a lot of Christians like that, that they're, they're saved, but because of carnality and because of the world and things, uh, they're unfruitful Christians. And, uh, and then you have Christians that are producing fruit. And again, you right. can see all those same people in church. And I think that that represents the, to the best of my ability, based upon the text itself, it seems to, be, to represent the, the people that he's talking to in, in this community as well. Yeah, and I think we're going to get some questions tonight that deal with that that kind of uh, that toggling back and forth uh, between the different audiences that would have been present can actually be a little bit complicated at times as you're reading, and you really have to parse uh, as the the direction of the the dialogue you know it points a different way. You kind of have to follow with Paul in order to really understand what's going on, and that can some sometimes be a little bit difficult and, and maybe even a hang up for some people. Sure. I think that if, if you keep, if you just keep very standard traditional Christian doctrine in mind, uh, that's, that's the easiest thing to guide you to help sift through that. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of the idea of that, this being written to a future people um, I think actually that that's probably what confuses the issue the most. Hmm. Uh, if we understand this as a book that's written to Christians and we keep solid Christian doctrine in mind, that's actually what helps us to, to guide us the best as to, well, we know he can't be talking to Christians when he says this part, because right. that can't be true about a Christian. 
Right. And so that, that helps us. But, um, but I think that all of those layers, we think there is a prophetic application and this is written to Hebrews and I'm not a Hebrew and we, all of those things, that's what starts to confuse the issue. But if we keep our, you know, very solid standard Christian doctrine in mind, then it helps us. That, that's what guides us the best. Yeah. And it helps us better understand even uh, it, uh, perhaps unlocks the, the specificity of the tribulation context that exists, right? It doesn't get muddy. We, we could feel and parse out what is, a, is directly related to a, a tribulation saint um, and, or, even, or even understand the dual applications involved. Yeah, absolutely. I, yeah, I think that keeping traditional Christian doctrine in mind, I think, is actually what helps you to highlight, you know, the parts uh, that would be applicable to those Jews in the tribulation and help you to see that even more clearly. Yeah. And, uh, so well, yeah, that's good. Yeah. The, the, uh, we're going to try to start digging into some of the questions because uh, what, the way this worked was we reached out to all the students in the Hebrews class and we let them know that we wanted to hear from them. And uh, if they had any questions related to the content so far this semester, uh, we invited them to submit those questions and we organized them the best we can. And we're going to try to include as many of the questions as we can tonight. If your question uh, doesn't get um, doesn't get introduced tonight, we apologize. We're just doing our very best. And, and where there was overlap, we try to consolidate a little bit. So um, I'm going to start with this question from Hunter in Lee Summit, Missouri. And he says, if you would be willing to clearly define the difference between a Jew and a Hebrew, okay, uh, particularly in relation uh, to the idea that, that Hebrews historically represent a broader audience than the Jews. Um, so when you hear Jew, that, that might imply uh, particularly, uh, you know, people from a, 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 the Judah Southern background, perhaps, is what he was saying. And so what are the implications of these different titles? When we use the term Jew, when we use the term Hebrew, um, why, you know, why are they one and the same sometimes? Why are they different? In what ways are they different? Yeah, um, I think to, to like, I'll, I'll, I'll cut to the easy answer first and then, and then give you a more detailed explanation. Um, today, we would use those phrases fairly interchangeably. Mm-hmm. Um, when, if we talk about a Hebrew, we're talking about a Jew. If we're talking about a Jew, we're talking about a Hebrew. Um, so today we would mean those fairly interchangeably and they're used interchangeably. There are certain groups that might see uh, the word Hebrew as somewhat derogatory today, but that's probably more for political reasons. But we generally use those interchangeably today. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, But for a more detailed answer, um, they were first called Hebrews. Uh, you can actually, it's interesting because the first time you actually see the word Hebrews or Hebrew is in Genesis 14, where we see Melchizedek come up. It's actually mm-hmm. the first time you see the word Hebrew and it's related to Abraham uh, called Abram at the time. And uh, it's in uh, Genesis 14, 13, uh, when it talks about him, uh, Abraham, which was a Hebrew. And uh, so that's the first time it says that. And uh, it says uh, there came one, uh, one that had escaped and he told, so he was, when he told Abram about, uh, uh, you know, Lot being kidnapped, 
And so he came up and he told Abram uh, the Hebrew. He refers to him as Abram the Hebrew. And um, so the reason why he's called a Hebrew, uh, if you compare that uh, to Genesis chapter 11, verses 10 to 26, uh, because his you know, great-great-grandfather was named Eber. Mm-hmm. So he was, he was of his father, Eber, so Eber's children are Eberus. <laughs> they are Hebrews. Right. And uh, so you can see if you in those verses from 10 to 26 in chapter 11 of Genesis, just a few chapters before, uh, it gives you the genealogy uh, all the way from Shem down to Abraham. And Eber was, is in that line. And so, uh, so once you get from Eber to Abraham, then of course, uh, Abraham is the one who begets Isaac, right? And then Isaac begets Jacob. Now, when you get to Jacob, uh, that's when the name is then applied. So you have Hebrew people, but when you get to Jacob, that's when the name is then uh, of that nation becomes, as the line narrows, that's when that nation becomes Israel. Mm-hmm. So his name is changed to Israel. And uh, so, uh, in, that's in Genesis 32, 27 to 28, right. is when his name is changed to Israel. And of course, Jacob begat the 12 tribes, right? And one of those tribes is named Judah, Judah, right? And so uh, the first time that you actually see that the word Jew, J-E-W used is in 2 Kings uh, <clears throat> 16, 1 to 6. And it's referring, in that particular case, it's referring to the tribe of Judah, or specifically uh, the separated kingdom of Judah. Because see, under Solomon, uh, or after Solomon, that is, uh, the, the kingdom was split into two. So you had the, in the north, you had the 10 tribes referred to as Israel. And then in the southern kingdom, you had Judah and Benjamin, the two tribes that were referred to as Judah. And so when the word Jew is used for the first time, it was talking about people that were part of the Southern kingdom, the Southern part that came out of Judah and Jew was like a, an abbreviation for those who came from Judah. Um, But then of course, when you compare that to Esther, when you get into Esther, you can see that during the exile and then after, during and after the exile, the word Jew uh, was broadened and was used to reflect all of them, not just people from the southern kingdom, but people that were Israelites and Judah alike. Uh, they were referred to, you can see that in Esther, Esther chapter 3, verse 6, when he says he wanted to destroy all the Jews. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that's not referring anymore during this exilic period when they're in Babylon to specifically those who are just from Judah. He's referring to all Israelites uh, the same. And so you can see kind of the progression of how this word came to be. They started out as Hebrews coming from Eber, and then the, the name of Israel gets applied to them, and then that nation splits into two, so then you have Judah, and that's where the name or the word Jew comes from. But all of them are under the umbrella of Hebrews, right? Mm-hmm. So, you, so you have roosters and hens, but they're all chickens, you see what I'm saying? Uh, just to put it simply. Uh, yeah. 
So you that's, got Israelites and you got Jews, but they're all Hebrews. Okay. And so and you yeah, think so. that do you think that the the letter was titled Hebrews historically because there's such an emphasis on um, Genesis uh, and, and 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 the narrative of Abraham in the context of the of the book? I mean, do you think that that's why that title because it's a throwback to to Abraham himself, you know, um, in terms of the narrative. I, I, I think that there's a real distinct possibility that that could be a connection. I also mm-hmm. think that it's, it's more exact um, because I mean, the, you know, Jew is, is a bit, is closer to slang than, than it is exact. So, yeah. so a Hebrew would be more exact uh, an Israelite would be a little bit more exact. A Jew would be closer to slang. Um, I, I remember I was working with some guys over here that they worked at this organization called uh, Jews for Jesus. And I worked for, with them for a while. So I worked with a number of Jewish people. And, um, I, you know, I kept referring to them as the Jews, you know, or you're talking to the Jews or, you know, and one of the guys was like, you know, probably, you know, they don't really you know, like being referred to as the Jews. <laughs> nah. Is it okay? Wait, wait, wait. So, was the problem the fact that you were using the word "the"? Maybe I, I don't know, but it was. I, I think that I think that the to, to call them Hebrews, you know, is probably more appropriate and more, more respectful. More, yeah. yeah. Did they so, remember that their 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 organization was called Jews for Jesus? Did they? <laughs> Did they forget that? <laughs> yeah, it might have been. The it, seems, it seems unfair. It seems unfair to hold you to that standard. Yeah, I thought so, but uh, yeah. So I, I didn't do it anymore. Yeah, no more the Jews. Did you start referring to people as Hebrews? <laughs> no, I didn't really know what to. I didn't know what to say anymore. So what you're saying is you're just as confused as Hunter was. Yeah, I think that, to be honest, I think that if I would have said, you know, the Jewish people, maybe, mm-hmm. or something like that, then that probably would have been, but just saying, yeah, you know, when you're talking to the Jews, you know, <laughs> maybe it just sounded a little derogatory, but, um, but I, <laughs> especially with you, especially with your accent, you're all, so, people are going to always think that you're like saying something racist, even when yeah. you're not. Yeah, that's right. Just because uh, I have a southern twang to my voice, but but I think that uh, yeah, the the word Hebrews is going to be all encompassing. Yeah, and, and going to be more exact, and uh, and it could. I think uh, that's a really good point. It could go all the way back to Abraham, um, especially since it's the very it's the very spot where you know Paul is dealing with specifically in Hebrews seven when he really lays out. Uh, the pivotal point in the letter dealing with the change in the priesthood under Melchizedek, that's when they're first called Hebrews. Mm-hmm. Right. So they very well could be. So here's another question related to the audience uh, in Hebrews. This is from Kelby in Columbus, Ohio. And he asks, I've heard people teach that Hebrews is like the book of James, where it's written specifically to and for Jews in the tribulation period and not including uh, Jewish Christians. My, my question deals with the application in light of Galatians 3.28, where there is no longer Jew or Greek 
in this dispensation. If the book was written to Christian Jews in 60 AD, wouldn't that mean it's written to all Christians, not just Jewish Christians? If so, that seems to, to complicate some passages if being applied to the church. Also, this is normally taught as a transition book like that of Matthew and Acts. Could you maybe explain this book as a transition book in light of my previous question about the uh, about who it is written to and who it is written? Oh, yeah, and who it is written to. Sorry. So I, I actually think Kelby doesn't know that there's like four questions in there. <laughs> but that's okay. We'll give him a pass, and we're gonna. <laughs> We're going to leave it to you to figure that out. Is that cool? Are you ready for that? No, that's fine. That's fine. okay. It's a, it's a really good question. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, I think that. Well, so let's just let's just dive right in. In order for the sake of time, we'll just dive dive right in. Uh, the book of Hebrews is is not written to Jews in the tribulation. Uh, there is a prophetic application. There is a dual application. There is a prophetic application for Jews in the tribulation. And this application, the Jews in the tribulations will uh, greatly benefit from the book of Hebrews. There is no question. But that's different than saying it's written to them, mm -hmm. right? And this would also be applied to the book of James. Uh, so let me make like kind of a broad statement here. There is no book in the Bible that is written to Jews in the tribulation. There, there is no book in the Bible. Uh, even the book of Revelation that concerns the Jews in the tribulation a great deal was written to the church. You can see mm -hmm. that Revelation chapter 1, verse 4. It's from John to the seven churches in Asia. Uh, that's who it's actually written to, right? It's written about Jews in the tribulations, but it, it was written to uh, the church. And uh, so there's, there's much in the Bible that is written about Jews in the tribulation, the scripture, but you, you cannot, here's the, here's the thing. <clears throat> you cannot write a letter and mail it to a group of people that don't exist. Right. You, you, can't, you can't do that. Um, so without going into all the various references in Hebrews that refer to the recipients uh, as believers. Uh, let's just look at one passage uh, okay. real quick in Hebrews chapter 13, verses 23 to 25. <clears throat> and Kelby brings up a really good point. He, he, you can tell that he's, he's putting this together already because he's saying, you know, it was written 80, 60, you know, whatever. Right. Uh, obviously that's right in the body of Christ. Right. Right. And so he's, he's already, you can tell he's already putting this together. Uh, but uh, Hebrews 13, 23 to 25, where it says, uh, know ye that our brother Timothy is set at liberty with whom, if he comes shortly, I will see you. So salute all of them that have the rule over you and all the saints. Uh, they of Italy salute you. Grace be with you all. Amen. So uh, Timothy, of course, was a minister of the church. He was actually a pastor of the church in Ephesus, and mm -hmm. he was a minister of the church in Paul's crew. And the thing that, if we just look logically at this passage, so if you just look at that passage, the people to whom Paul wrote this letter are the same people that he and Timothy are making plans to go and see, right? 
So there is a group of people that exist that he's writing this letter to. And so who are these people? Well, we don't know who they are. Uh, what we do know, we do know that this book was probably written sometime between AD 55 and AD 65. Some people say as late as AD 80. So we know the recipients uh, whom Paul was planning to visit, uh, we know that those people are not Jews in the tribulation. Right. Unless, people... unless uh, you know, Christopher Lloyd shows up with like a, you know, future travel device of some sort, you know, I right. mean, what is it, what is that thing called? What, you lived that time frame. What was that car the called? Flux capacitor. Yeah, that was the, th but what was the car? What kind of vehicle? Was oh, that? it was a DeLorean. A DeLorean. That's right. That's right. So if a DeLorean yeah, showed up. It was made out of steel. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Well, these, these are the people that this book was written to. If we're talking about who is it written to, I'm just pointing out in this passage, there were a group of people that were the recipients of this letter. Mm -hmm. If we're going to talk about who it was written to, we have to say it was written to those people, right? He wrote right. it to them and they were expected to understand it and obey it. Uh, they, they weren't just taking this letter and then putting it on a shelf somewhere to say, obviously, this does not apply to us. Mm -hmm. um, it was written to those people. And I know that sounds like I'm oversimplifying it, uh, but I don't think so. Uh, in fact, I think a lot of the things that get said about this book really overcomplicate it. Uh, this was written to a real group of people somewhere between AD 55 and AD 80, somewhere in there. And it was written, it was contemporary with the book of Romans. And uh, there is historical evidence that, um, when Paul's epistles were passed around the churches to be read, that the book of Hebrews, along with some of the other epistles, were that the book of Hebrews was was right after the book of Romans, when they mm -hmm. would get these letters and when they would read them in their church. Um, so these are these are the people that the book was written to. They were meant to understand it, apply it. Uh, all of the stern warnings and exhortations in this book, they were meant to take heed to those things. Uh, now, again, I want to reiterate, there is a prophetic application to the Jews in the tribulation. That's without a doubt. Yeah. Uh, you can't read the book, at least having some sort of eschatological understanding. You can't read this book and not see that. Mm -hmm. uh, there is an application to the Jews in tribulation, and that should be observed. The recipients to this letter are Hebrews and Hebrews, and they are Hebrew Christians, and that should be observed. Uh, this book was written in the dispensation of the church, it, contemporary with the book of Romans and a number of other Pauline epistles. And so uh, we do understand uh, that in this dispensation, as he points out in Galatians, that there is neither Jew nor Greek, and uh, it, it is written to all Christians. However, there is a special consideration for them being Hebrews, and I'm going to get to that in just a second. But this, uh, there is a theory out there that this book was written and that neither the author nor the recipients understand who it's being written to or why. And, uh, and I think that that theory is without merit. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think there's any, uh, any evidence to suspect such a thing. Um, right. and so, um, the, the book of Hebrews was written to Hebrew Christians and it can be applied directly to the body of Christ. 
Okay, so having said that, the reason why the book is called Hebrews and not Christians, right? Um, and so that's, I've been told that ever since I was a kid, you know, mm -hmm. this book was written to Hebrews, not to Christians, you know, because what's it called? That's what people always say. What's the, what's the book called? Hebrews. Are you a Hebrew? No. Well, it's not written to you. And uh, that is not correct. That is not correct. Uh, if you're a Christian, you can understand this book and you can apply it. Mm -hmm. And 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 not not only that, you should understand this book and apply it. Um, however, it is called Hebrews, so that's something that we can't overlook because it is called Hebrews, and I'm not a Hebrew. So what is the deal? Um, and the reason why this book is called Hebrews is because Paul is addressing Hebrew believers, and they have a very specific problem that they are dealing with that we as Gentiles don't have to deal with. So there's something that he has to address with Hebrew Christians that Gentile Christians don't have to deal with. Mm -hmm. uh, they are being tempted to abandon their faith and go back to Judaism, and this is a very special consideration uh, given to them because the Levitical priesthood and the law were given to them by God, right? Uh, this is something that a Gentile cannot say. Uh, the oracles of God, according to Romans 3, 2, the oracles of God were committed to the Jews. Uh, so they, uh, they are having to understand and choose between the God-given law and the God-given Christ. Both God-given, and according to Romans chapter 7, the law is good. It's not bad. Right. So as I stated this in the lecture, you know, if you went up to evangelize a, a Gentile and you said you need to turn to the truth because what you're believing is a lie, it's that simple. If you go to a Jew and you're trying to evangelize them, you say, well, you need to turn to the truth. And they say, well, we already have the truth. And they would be right. Mm -hmm. And you say, yeah, but this is the truth that's from God. And they're like, so is ours. <laughs> and they're right. So there's special consideration to help them see that, yes, you do have the truth. It is given right. to you from God. However, it's incomplete. And as Hebrews chapter 7, verse 11 states, it, it's not able to perfect you, right? Mm -hmm. there, there's, there is a reason why a new priesthood has to come. And you can see how detailed of an explanation the book of Hebrews is. Uh, he's trying to help them understand that this is the completion of what God's given, as Galatians also points out, that, that the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. Right. So there's a special consideration that has to be given to Hebrew believers to help them understand the difference and why it is that they are allowed and should let go and forsake the old Judaism altogether to embrace uh, what we have now in the body of Christ. Yeah, and, and I think that this is... Yeah, and I think that this is, you know, uh, seen clearly in the ministry of Paul in Acts. So you see Paul ministering to Jews, and you see him ministering to Gentiles, and his approach is different with, with depending on the audience. And so with Jews, he's obviously addressing uh, time and time again both his testimony of salvation as a Jew himself but also making reference to the, the great heritage and tradition and the oracles of old, you know, the prophetic teachings that they had. 
He doesn't take that approach with the Gentiles. They don't have that kind of baggage that needs to be sifted through. Um, Good word. So it, I think Hebrews is a book where he carves out space to address the baggage of a religion that is um, um, right, but not perfect, you know, not, not mature in Christ. So, yeah. So I think that when, when you're uh, to, to consolidate this answer, um, the, the reason why the book is called Hebrews is not because it doesn't apply to Christians. Um, it's, it's because he's trying to help Hebrews understand really what it means to be a Christian. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so there is special consideration that needs to be given to them because of the baggage that they come with. Mm -hmm. And, um, so a Christian should know and understand the doctrinal teaching of this book. Um, but it was written to Hebrews because they're dealing with something that a Gentile will never have to deal with. And you can see this in the, in the sermon by Stephen in Acts chapter seven, you can see this in the sermon by Paul in Acts chapter 13, uh, when he's evangelizing Jews, as opposed to whenever he's, uh, I think it's chapter 18, when he's on Mars Hill, when you mm -hmm. compare these sermons, um, and very, very, very different. And yeah. uh, so that's the reason why that this book is called Hebrews. It's not because it doesn't apply to believers. He's just trying to get these uh, Hebrews to understand why it's okay for them to let go of their Judaism and to embrace and hold fast to Christ. That's a Gentile doesn't have a need for, for right. that, that kind of an argument. Uh, for, for us as Gentiles, we go to Romans mm -hmm. because that's right. the book we, that's the book we need. Um, but anyway, that's a, that's a really great question. And, and I think you can apply that same truth to, to James. Yeah. Uh, to the book of James as well. Uh, just to try to give a complete answer to Kelvin in, in this, that it, it would apply to James as well. So I would say it's written for believers, um, or it's written to believers, but written for tribulation saints. Right. Right. To make that distinction. It's not, it's not written to tribulation saints, saints, but it is written for them. It's written to directly to uh, Hebrew Christians and then any Christian can benefit from the doctrine, but specifically addresses the problem that Hebrew Christians face. Which when you, when you say that, it's interesting because ultimately that's true of the whole of Scripture. Uh, but it's particularly true of certain books, right? Yeah. There are certain books, uh, you know, if we're talking about the New Testament specifically, the general epistles um, have keys that, that unlock doors, you know, um, in the future. And I wonder if, you know, it makes me think, you know, there are, you know, seven mysteries that the Old Testament Jew couldn't have understood uh, prior to Christ. And once we got past that first advent, um, suddenly, you know, something was unlocked for the New Testament believer. And now the scripture reveals these seven mysteries that the church age believer can understand. And I'm, I wonder, I want your perspective on this. I wonder if there's a similar thing that's supposed to take place with the scriptures at the, at the point that Christ um, takes his bride home. Is there an unlocking, you know, I wonder where, where suddenly the blinders drop 
Hebrews chapter nine, I mean, uh, Romans chapter nine comes into effect. God begins working at grafting, you know, uh, the Jews back into his body, right? Into, into uh, his congregation. And I wonder if the, the blinders uh, are, are dropped and suddenly they can see the mysteries of these books that have been previously maybe more difficult for, for us and, and for them to see. And, and this actually relates to, to another question that we're going to come up to later on. But, but maybe you could talk about that in terms of the tribulation. How do you, how do you perceive that taking place? Well, I definitely think that um, the Bible talks about that there will be a time when, as a nation, the blindness will be removed. Mm-hmm. Uh, as you can see that in, in Romans chapter 11. And um, so I think that, you know, it's at that time that a lot of these books that address Jewish themes and, and just to be, and just to clarify uh, Hebrews, even though it focuses on the Hebrew problem that they face, it's not the only book that addresses that, mm-hmm. you know, Galatians addresses that even in the book of Romans, you know, almost all of Romans chapter two is right. directed right at the Jewish part of that congregation. Mm-hmm. Uh, chapters nine through 11 are directed at them directly, you know, at the Jewish people in the congregation directly. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not the only place that this Jewish problem is directed. Um, and so if we say that this is only to Jews in the tribulation, uh, what do we do about all the other places that are directed at the Jewish right. problem? Right. Um, but, but I do think that when we get into after the rapture, and now Christ is focused back on Israel again, and he's going to be revealing himself, and they will look upon me of whom they had pierced, and, and he will reveal himself to the nation of Israel, and that blindness is taken away. I think that these books will come alive, to use your phrase, uh, that you, you said this to me. I think that's a good way to put it. These books will really come alive uh, to them and will be of tremendous help uh, mm-hmm. to what they're going through. And uh, so, yeah, I think that it'll play, play a big part. So Hebrews chapter six, obviously, is a, you know, you spent a lot of time addressing Hebrews six in the lectures. And so, you know, anybody that has not taken the, the, the Hebrews class, we want to encourage people that, that um, you need to sign up next time this class comes around. You did, uh, I thought, a really good, thorough job of uh, addressing some of the problems that people have, the, the theological difficulties people have in chapter six. So why is it? Why is this pa- passage so tricky? Well, I don't want to go back and rehash the entire lecture uh, because we don't need to do that. But but why is chapter six so tricky, and in what ways is it often misunderstood? Uh, well, the the tr- the trickiness is, I mean, that's simple. Uh, it's the word impossible. Mm-hmm that's what makes it that's what makes it so impossible to understand (laughs) is the word impossible and uh yeah that's what throws people because everybody's doing fine they're reading it and they're doing good and all of a sudden it's impossible to renew them again into repentance and they're like what right uh what what did he just say (laughs) because the idea that it would ever be impossible Especially because, you know, if you're reading straight through, you know, you've been reading about how it may be impossible for men, but with God, nothing's impossible, you know, to reach somebody. And all of a sudden you find somebody that it is impossible to renew them to repentance. And you're like, what, what is he talking about? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then, of course, when you look at that prophetic application, that it seems pretty straightforward. 
you know, that if you take the mark of the beast, well, then it's impossible to renew you to repentance. If you go right. back, you know, even if they observe Judaism and they take the mark of the beast, it, they're still, they're done and right. their fate is sealed. And so that prophetic application, uh, you can see why someone would say, well, this is obviously not written to the church. It's just written to the Jews in the tribulation because this ticks all the boxes. Yeah, it's an easy way of making it black and white. Um, it is. But it's, it a, it's, a, it's a convenient thing in the moment, but it's an inconvenience as, as it concerns the whole of the book, right? Like doing that is, doesn't get you anywhere. Yeah, because we still have to remember, as we said in, in Hebrews chapter 13, he was talking to a real group of people. So what did they do with this verse? Mm-hmm. when when he because he was writing that warning to them right so what are they supposed to do with that verse what are we supposed to do with that verse because we're living in the same age as those original recipients and so that it doesn't it doesn't really answer that problem mm-hmm. uh, even though it should be observed that that will come into play no doubt um, right but it doesn't that doesn't answer really the question ultimately Right. And so people get hung up on this impossible thing. And, uh, and so I think that that's what becomes so fun is for me, the, the fun part is when you find something like that is thinking, oh, great. Now I get to spend my time getting to the bottom of it. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that is, uh, man, that's, that's a joy. When you find something like that in the Bible and you're like, okay, so you just roll up your sleeves and you start, you know, there's just Bible verses flying everywhere, right? And you're just right, going through right. it, trying to figure out and get to the bottom of it. I imagine uh, you wearing the the chef's hat. What's the Muppet character? <laughs> yes, yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's like that German dude that's just like. Yeah, right. Yeah. So, yeah, that's so what it looks like. Do you, uh, so you draw a conclusion in terms of how to unlock this. And you present all of the arguments, which we don't have time for tonight. You present all yeah. of the arguments. A lot of the arguments, frankly, are men working really hard at making sure that, that um, eternal security remains intact because uh, people read this, obviously, and they say to themselves, well, I mean, uh, you know, and in fact, a, a Pentecostal who doesn't see their Bible dispensationally would own that. They would, they would read Hebrews and they'd say to themselves, well, I mean, we were right. This is proof that you can lose your salvation. Um, and, and so a lot of guys like us, the dispensationalists are looking for an, an, a convenient way of tidying that up, uh, because we don't, we know that, that the Bible teaches that, you know, at the point of salvation, at the point you're sealed by the spirit, uh, that salvation is retained into eternity. And so Hunter had another question that was related to chapter six before we move on, uh, particularly the following verses, Hebrews six sixteen. So this is the, the second half of of Hebrews. We've kind of been camped out at the beginning of Hebrews 6, but the second half of Hebrews 6. Yeah. Verse 16 uh, reads, for men verily swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife, wherein God willingly more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things, in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. Um, 
so he asks in Hebrews 6, 17, what is the actual oath that's being referred to from the context of the chapter and, and book as a whole? I understand the immutability of his counsel to mean God's changing will that we would be partakers of the full assurance of hope found in Christ. But it says God confirmed this counsel, his, this will with an oath. And I'm a little uncertain what the oath actually is. Yeah, that's probably my fault, to be honest. Because when I taught at the end of chapter six, man, we were moving really fast yeah. to get to get that part done in the amount of time that we had. So, uh, yeah, I feel I feel responsible for that. That the fact that he doesn't understand that. Uh, but that's why again. we're doing this. That's yeah, why we're doing so this. Yeah, I'm this glad is... that there's the clarification. Um, and I think I might have touched on it in the next session when we when we gave the overall view of Melchizedek. Mm -hmm. uh, but you get the answer to that anyway. Sorry, the, the answer to that is given to you in chapter seven, verses 20 and 21. He tells you what the oath is uh, because he says like in verses uh, 20, 21. Um, so he says, it as much as not without an oath, he was made a priest uh, for those priests were made without an oath, but this with an oath, by him that said unto him, the Lord swear and will not repent that thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So this is referring to Psalm chapter 110, verse four, where it says specifically, the Lord hath sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Uh, this is the oath that he's saying. So it's an, it should be enough that God has promised uh, thou art a priest forever after Lord of Melchizedek. But he says here, it gives more than that. He actually says the Lord hath sworn. So he, he gives an oath with it. And this is something that the Levitical priesthood does not have. They yeah, have, that's good. They don't have that type of oath with it. And the oath is there because as I say, his, his promise is always enough. But the fact that he adds an oath with it really emphasizes the permanence of this uh, priestly order. And so that's why Paul makes issue out of it, as he's saying the Levitical priesthood, you know, when God promised it, but he didn't ever say, I swear. <laughs> he didn't say, I swear, I'm going to do this. He added an oath with this as an extra emphasis on the security and permanence of this priesthood. So the actual oath is Psalm 110, verse 4. Mm. That's good. And I think a question like this also points to what you said at the very beginning about the circular nature of Hebrews um, yeah. written for that audience, because what you see a lot of, uh, you know, what Paul's doing is he alludes to something by using a particular word, yeah. but he, he drops it knowing that he's coming back to it later. We're going to, we're going to circle back around. So he'll <laughs> use a word like this. And, and then you won't see it pop up or, you know, described or a concept will pop up, but then he revisits it later, later on because he's kind of swirling things, if you will, uh, for lack of a better term, swirling things together versus that linear Gentile-like logic. So, Absolutely. Yeah, he definitely does that. And that's mm -hmm. one of the reasons why it's really hard to outline. You, you wouldn't believe it, but amongst theologians, one of the things that's debated is just the outline of the book, mm -hmm. trying to figure out how to best to outline it. Um, and uh, 
but yeah, it's, that's one of the reasons is because if you ever take like one of the parts that I struggled with the most was the, the last half from like verse 11 to 28 at the end of chapter seven, when he really comes to the heart of it, trying to give like a ABC outline of like what he's saying, like in order is a challenge because he does like, he'll say something and he'll be like, it's obvious that this has happened and Oh, don't forget this happened. And, and then he'll come back to something else. And you're like, man, just say it in order for me. Yeah. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't yeah, and if any of our students that have taken any classes with Alan Shelby uh, <laughs> know that he does this too. He'll yeah. make a joke or a cultural reference in the first three minutes of any lecture or, or sermon. You'll have no idea what it has to do with anything. And then in the last five minutes, he puts a bow on it and your brain melts. Yeah, yeah. So, you, you know, there's, some, there's something to it because it's pri- there's a priming of the heart that takes place, I think, in this letter is that he, he primes things and he's like, we'll come back to that. Just, I just want you to just, I want to touch that, but, but we'll come back to it. And, and I think in that way, it's a very uh, warm letter too. Very, very, very thoughtful. Oh, absolutely. It's great. It's, it's just a fantastic letter. Yeah. So if we, can, if we can jump ahead a bit to some content that you haven't yet covered in the class, is that scary for you? <laughs> No, that's fine. Ready. You're ready for it. Okay. So um, this question relates to the analogy, uh, an anal- or, I'm sorry, not an analogy, uh, to the angelology that pops up in um, chapter 13. In, in, yeah. Well, in 13, but I mean, there's angelology really uh, quite a bit throughout the book. Starting uh, in chapter one. Yeah. Starting in chapter one. And then, it, and then again, it comes back to, some angelology later on. And so Robbie from Cartersville, Georgia asks in Hebrews 13 two, the Bible tells us to not forget to entertain strangers. Um, because this is like a, that's like a verse that like uh, old ladies use, to, you know, to talk about being hospitable to people, right? Like <laughs> it's, it's a verse we use a lot that, that just basically puts a lot of pressure on hospitality making sure that the potluck is what it needs to be. Um, so, so here we go. Uh, because in doing so, uh, we have entertained angels unaware. Is this verse telling us angels are among us even today? And if so, uh, and, and, you know, I think when he says that, I think he's, he, he knows that they are. Like he's, he's alluding to the fact the question points to that. But as if, uh, and if so, does this likewise mean that those fallen angels are also among us unaware? And is it unbiblical to imagine that there are people that live and walk among, among us that aren't actually human, but are rather inge- angelic, which I think is the actual true question, because I think most of us know that, of course, there's, there's angels all around us um, that are working and endeavoring on our behalf or working against us, you know, in reference to the devils. Uh, that's mm-hmm. happening around us in the invisible realm all the time. Um, uh, and so we, we, we kind of know that. But the, the real question I think is interesting. Is it unbiblical to imagine that there are people that live and walk among us that aren't actually human, but are rather angelic beings of some sort? Mm. Kind, of a wild, kind of a wild question. No, it's cool. I mean, it's yeah. really cool. Um, yeah, I think that, I mean, we, we know that angels are God's ministers, right? Hebrews chapter one, verse 14. 
and they're there to minister to those who are the heirs of salvation, right? Uh, it does tell us that, uh, and we uh, we can certainly see angels in the biblical record are at work among human beings, and they interact. And, and of course, we have this verse here that you know tells us that you mm-hmm. know that you could entertain uh, angels unaware. The thing I think is important to take note of uh, in this passage is that it what it says here to them is that if they do entertain right strangers uh, or if they do entertain angels in particular that they probably would not be aware of it right that's an important word in the statement you need to entertain strangers um, because in doing so it's very possible that you could have entertained angels and been unaware of it so the implication is, is that if they are there, you're probably not aware that they are. And, uh, and I think that that's probably the disposition that we should always take as Christians is that we should remain unaware. Um, mm-hmm. As far as I can tell, uh, we as Christians really don't have uh, any reason to interact or be aware of them. Uh, if they were to make themselves known to us, that would be their business, but there's really no reason why we should have to be aware of them. So if we were to entertain them, we probably wouldn't know anyway, right? right? So I think that's a, that's an important, very important word. I would also just want to stress that this this verse is not teaching that you need to let strangers into your house. Uh, don't do that. <laughs> In today's world, if there's strangers walking past your house and they're like, hey, man, can I have a place to say no, you find a shelter for them, find a place for them to sleep. Um, the, the idea of strangers is that this word means anyone who is not naturally a part of the people who live in that house would qualify under the definition of stranger. I think the, the emphasis today, the application today was is that you need to be hospitable you know, invite people over to your house. And if you have friends that need a place to stay, you should let them stay. Um, I don't think that it's wise for you to let strangers come into your house. I do not think right. that that is a very smart move. However, when you see the prophetic application of this in the mm-hmm. time of the tribulation, entertaining strangers into your house uh, will be necessary to survival during the tribulation. Explain that. Well, because they're going to be on the run. You know, people are going to be literally on the run and they're going to need to hide out. They're going to be staying together with people that they probably don't know. And they're going to be, you know, uh, they're going to be kind of like, we got to take care of each other. That disposition will take over as they try to survive. So the idea of entertaining strangers will become a much more necessary function for survival. And of course, when we look at the time of tribulation, the book of Revelation, who else is involved heavily? Angels Mm -hmm. are all over the place when you study the book of Revelation. So uh, there's, you can see a real prophetic application here that as they try to run for their lives, as they try to survive, um, entertaining strangers will become a part of that life, I think. Yeah. And I think that uh, angelic activity will be certainly on the increase. Um, 
But I think as we apply that to our lives today, um, it just as a side note, really, you know, some guy comes knocking on your door and says he needs a bed, call a shelter. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we'll ask this question and we'll, and then we'll, we'll put a, a bow on it. So Hannah in Kansas City uh, asks, something I've been wondering for some time now is why or how some Jews, as in Jews today, ignore the fulfilled pro- uh, promises in the New Testament, right? So, you know, fulfillment of the, of the prophecies, right, of, of old. Uh, how can they ignore these fulfilled promises? And you made reference to this earlier when we were talking about Romans uh, 9 through 11, and, and the, you know, we talked about the blindness, but maybe you can talk about that a little bit because it, it is, it's kind of a sad reality uh, yeah. that, that the Jews who are so dear to us as believers, you know, our next of kin, if you will, in the, in the faith, um, are generation after generation refusing God. What is it? What is it that is keeping them from seeing? And then what will it be that causes them to see once again? And, and maybe how does all this have to do with Hebrews? Well, I think that if you're talking about, you can talk about this from two different angles. You can talk one on a national level and then another on an individual level. Mm-hmm. Um, on a national level, that's what's really dealt with there in Romans chapter uh, 11, specifically right. verses 7 through 10, as well as you can throw in verse 25. Mm-hmm. And so really dealing with them on a national level. And um, and then when you get to 25 to 26, that's where it really sums it up and says there will come a time when they will be saved. But it, it lets us know in that particular passage that it was because of their unbelief as a nation, right, that uh, blindness in part has happened to them until the time of the Gentiles is complete. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, God has decided to make them blind as a nation right now mm-hmm. uh, because they rejected Christ and they chose that their leadership on behalf of their nation chose that and they rejected Christ and they wanted him crucified on the cross and the cross really represents their rejection of their Messiah. And because of that, then now blindness has been given to them until the time of the Gentiles is over. And then he will uh, and that that will take us directly really to the last half of the tribulation from the midpoint to the end that uh, that's when Babylon will start to fall and all those final judgments will come and Christ will reveal himself and and he will open up their eyes. Christ mm-hmm. will reveal himself to them once again and um, and then they will be able to uh, see Christ and, and that remnant of them will accept Christ. Mm-hmm. And so Israel will be saved in the end. So because of their rejection, blindness has happened. It's, it's part of God's sovereign plan that the nation be blind now. And that is beneficial to us, Paul says, because the gospel has gone to us, right? Mm-hmm. And so uh, that's on a national level, that's why. Uh, on a personal level, you could look at uh, Acts 13, 15, as well as Acts 8.27 and uh, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11. And uh, you can see Christ uh, deals with this. Uh, Paul deals with this in Acts. And then I believe Paul does again 
talks about this in Hebrews 5.11. And uh, so he says that these people, you know, their heart has waxed gross, their ears are dull of hearing, and they have closer in Matthew 13, 15, it says these people's heart is waxed gross, their ears are dull of hearing. And it says specifically, and their eyes, they have closed, right? They have closed their own eyes. And that's really important because mm -hmm. it talks about in another place, because the disciples said, why are you talking in parables? And he says specifically, he says, uh, I'm doing this um, because um, I, I'm talking in parables on purpose to make sure that they don't understand, he says. Yeah. <clears throat> to make sure that they don't understand what I'm talking about. And that sounds like when he says that, like, why would he do that? <clears throat> but when you compare it to this, you can see that the problem is that they, they have closed their ears and they have closed their own eyes. And so Christ is like, okay, that's fine. If you don't want to know, uh, then I won't tell you. That's the mm -hmm. idea. Mm -hmm. So on a personal level, you can see with Christ and with Paul in Acts and in, in Hebrews 5.11, he says the same thing. He says the same thing to him, talking to those people who are false believers, unconverted believers. Your ears have grown dull with hearing. It says mm. the same thing to them. These are people who uh, don't want to believe. So for any individual, we must remember the way that the wrath of God works. And I think that this is a very scary thing um, really to consider. When, when you compare this to Romans chapter one, when it says specifically in that context that the wrath of God has been revealed against the ungodliness of men uh, who, who hold the truth, it says, in unrighteousness. That's the context. Um, when you understand the way that God's wrath works, it works this way, just to put it simply, because, you know, we're running out of time. If you do not want to see, then God will make sure that you cannot see. Mm -hmm. If you do not want to hear, then God will make sure that you cannot hear. You see, our pride convinces us that we will just get right tomorrow, right? That's what we always say. You say, I'll get right tomorrow. You know, I'll get right next week. And we always say that. Uh, but, and people, you know, evangelists and preachers, they'll talk about, they'll say, well, you have no guarantee of tomorrow, right? That, and because you could, they say that, I, I heard that a lot when I was a kid, you know, you might get hit by a bus, you know, when you're walking your dog, you have no guarantee of tomorrow. Uh, but that's true in more ways than one. That's true in more ways. And it, it's highly improbable, actually, that you're going to get hit by a bus. But let, you, let me tell you something that's even more scary and more probable than getting hit by a bus or you dropping dead tomorrow. Uh, it's true you may not live to tomorrow. But the second reason and the one that's more probable is that you may not want to tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Now, that's what you should be afraid of. You have no guarantee that your refusal today, yeah, that your refusal to see today, right? Let me say that again. You have, sorry, it's two, it's two in the morning. So I'm trying to put these thoughts together. No, you you're have, doing good. You have no guarantee that your refusal to see today will not be an inability to see tomorrow. Hmm. 
You have no guarantee of that. Yeah. That's the reason why in Hebrews 4, 7, remember he says that he's limited to, to a certain day. He says, today, if you will hear my voice, harden not your hearts. That's all you've got. All you have is today. If yeah. you don't want to see, then God will make it to where you cannot see. Um, so, yeah, that's good. Those are really, really good principles that we should know. I mean, it, because understanding that um, helps us with a lot of, of stuff. It helps us understanding Pharaoh's heart. Um, Absolutely. It, under, it helps us to understand what to do with uh, Calvinists who want to throw free will, will away and they misunderstood that misunderstand this concept time and time again in scripture. And, mm-hmm. and so, no, that's, that, that is good. God is willing to give us over to the thing that we don't know we really want. He lets people's hearts become stony, you know? It's so true. And it's something I think the I think the reality of that, it, it causes such a tremendous fear in me because I know how frail I am, you know, and, um, it causes a tremendous amount of fear in me, to be honest, mm-hmm. whenever I think about this concept, because, um, whenever you don't want to do the right thing tomorrow or today, you know, you, you, you can hear the Holy spirit telling you. Yeah. And you're, and you're thinking, you know, tomorrow or the next, next week, you know, and if you don't want to do it today, I promise you. Okay. At the very least tomorrow, you will want to less. Yeah. And, and, and at the very least, and, and there's a there's a high probability that the option won't even be on the table for you. Absolutely. Because right, like, our, our repentance is grace. Right. And so there's no guarantee that you could wake up tomorrow and, and really have no desire to change at that point. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that that's when you say you have no guarantee of tomorrow, I think that's the one we should be more scared about. Mm hmm if I get hit by a bus, I'm going to heaven. <laughs> but the one I'm more scared about is living a life here in carnality and not being faithful, not right. holding fast, not, not being faithful that I'm more for, I'm more afraid of that. Mm. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's, that's a powerful thought. Well, Brian, uh, you're the man. I always love hanging out with you. Um, I wish we weren't so far apart from one another. I do want to give you a chance if there's anything else you want to say or add uh, to, to tonight. I mean, um, something you feel like you need to get out there. Um, please do that before we, we call it quits. Uh, yeah, just one last thought. This is something kind of like a prevailing mission thought that we have at our church here. Um, and uh, we call it SOT, you know, and um Uh, which stands for study, obey, teach. And um, we get that from Ezra chapter seven, verse 10, that Ezra prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and Mm -hmm. to teach the Israel, Israel, the statutes uh, of judgment, uh, that that's what he wanted to do. He wanted to study, he wanted to do it and he wanted to teach it. And, um, and so uh, we try to promote these three things as much as possible sot just remember those three things Mm -hmm. that you want to be first of all a student of the bible and man i'm just geek out on the word you know uh, be an academic read everything that you can study 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 diagram sentences man do everything just get into the word pull it apart put it back together be a serious student of the word 
eat it up like it's chocolate. Just so be a good student of the word, but that's not enough. You can't be just academic. You know, you, if you're studying it, the reason why I write every sermon that I write, anything that I do write, the reason why I'm writing it is because I want those answers for me. I, I really want those answers because I, I want to do them. Uh, I want it to infect my life. I have a saying that if your theology doesn't affect your cornflakes, then what good is it, right? Yeah, you that, wake makes up, so much, that makes so much sense. <laughs> well, it's, man, you've got to obey it. Yeah. You've got to, you know, you're getting, you're learning this stuff so that you can put it into practice. Yeah. So you've got to obey it because that's when you start to really learn it is when you start to do it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but it's not complete. This, this whole process will never be complete until you teach it to someone else. Right. You will never fully learn any passage of the Bible until you teach it to someone else. That is when the process comes full circle. The reason why you're studying it is so that you can obey it, but it's not to you multiply it, to you invest it into someone else and you teach them that's when it comes complete. If you can grab a hold of just those three things in your Christian life, I promise you, you will live a life that is both fruitful and faithful to the Lord Jesus. If you can do just those three things, study the word, obey the word, and teach the word to others. Brian, thank you. Man, I love you so much, Brandon. I I do wish that you could just come over for lunch tomorrow. I know, that would be great, wouldn't it? But. Thank you, Brian, and we thank you, the listener, for joining us for another episode of The Postscript. Uh, We love you, and uh, we devote our lives uh, to doing this kind of thing because despite the fact that we might not know you, uh, never seen your face before or or spent any time with you, we love you because Christ loves you. Uh, And uh, we take time. I mean, Brian, it's it's 2, 2.30 in the morning for him. And uh, he's doing this because he, he loves you. There's no other reason. It's illogical. And with that, because we love you, we want to invite you to come be a part of LFBI. Uh, LFBI is a, you know, a, a place of training for people who want to grow in their leadership and knowledge of God's word. And we offer it at $40 a credit hour because we don't care about the money. Uh, we're, we're doing it at, at below cost because we desire, desire so deeply uh, to get theology and Bible training and leadership training uh, to, to the world uh, as efficiently and as cheap as possible. We want it to be available to you. And so LFBI is a rigorous school with pastors and missionaries and church planters uh, as the professors, and, uh, and it's cost-effective, and it fits within your local church ministry and your time. It's flexible. And so with that, I want to make a pitch uh, for you to join us this summer for classes But also, man, uh, I beg you, uh, take classes like Hebrews, take classes where we're studying the Bible and we're making sense of things that can often be difficult for the average Bible reader or Christian. Uh, We're making sense of those things and we're teaching you how to divide God's word for yourself and and so that you can consume it on your own. And we can't wait to be with you again uh, next time for another episode of The Postscript. So with that, Brian, say goodbye to everyone. I'll see you guys later. I'll see you on Saturday. Awesome. Go get some sleep. I will. Love you guys.
Thanks for listening to The Postscript. If you enjoy the show, please leave us a rating and review in order to help other people find our podcast. If you value this show, please help us continue creating content by supporting Living Faith Bible Institute at lfbi.org support.